0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which explores the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the theethicalpanda.com.
1: And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast.
0: Today, we're talking about Minute 110, which begins with the credits for the production assistants who are Daniel Baxter, Federico Ferrari, Matthew Fortino, Matt Hall, David Cole, Teresa Jolene Lee, Olivia McCollum, Jesse Ozeri, Teresa Prindle, Trevor Tavares, Spencer Taylor, Allie Tycast, Amy Vanghaus, and Aaron Walker, and ends with Greensman, first unit standby foreman, Jeffrey Thomas in the New Mexico unit. Join us on the show today, as has been every day this week. We have Paul Hoppy, a.k.a. Zen Madman, a poker professional, a writer, a musician, a martial artist, and a frequent guest of mine, and occasionally a official or unofficial co-host on the Superhero Ethics and Star Wars Universe podcasts. Um, all. are you feeling like you never want to die? Are Foo Fighters inspiring you after been listening to it this intently for this
2: long? I always feel like I never want to die. Um, <laughs> I can't say that's inspired by the Foo Fighters. <laughs> the song is still going on. So if anything, was going to change my mind on that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it, the more serious question I want to ask is
0: I like what you said about how um, Thor – that so this movie kind of like was what made you kind of first buy into the MCU. And I'll admit, like, you you got me into the MCU. Like, I watched the Iron Man movie. I had no interest in Captain America or Thor. I watched Avengers and liked it. But after talking with you a lot, especially when you were getting very excited for Civil War, it was it kind of got me to go back and watch a lot of these things. Where where do you kind of go with that? Like, I mean, you and I have done a whole podcast on how you feel about the MCU now, but just especially in terms of like, start starting with where you saw this. How much do you think like you know Thor's journey in the MCU has kind of paid off and and. H- have you kept appreciating it the way you appreciated it in this movie
2: so after this movie i you know i watched avengers like five times in costa rica before it came out in the united states i didn't go to costa rica to see the movie that was just a nice side benefit I was, I was there to like, play poker. that's what i'm uh, yeah exactly i'm gonna go to costa rica and see this before it comes out in the u.s
0: <laughs> i mean there's folks who do that now like that's definitely a kind of tourism thing that happens
2: that that's commitment that's a thing i guess um i mean costa rica is lovely so like just go there to go there but but, um, yeah, it, you know, I, I liked how they brought Loki back for that movie. I thought he made a very compelling um, villain in, uh, in the Avengers. I think it was very smart to have, like, one focal villain and then just kind of a faceless army when you have, like, six main heroes and then some other important characters on the protagonist side. Um, and then Thor's journey, you know, Dark World... I actually originally liked dark world more than most people did. I think, you know, um, Ragnarok actually, by the time we got to Ragnarok, I was kind of like a little bit sort of over the MCU. Like I wasn't really excited for movies. You know, I, but then I saw Homecoming and I was like, oh, this, this is great. And then I saw Ragnarok and I was like, oh, this, this is great. (laughs) Like, you know, and then I saw Infinity War and I was like, why did you just undo everything that happened in in Ragnarok anyway? (laughs) um, But overall, yeah, I do think Thor's journey is really, really compelling. You know, I think, I think he has a big arc and that's one of the things that I think the MCU has done so well is with you know some of its central characters. It's just really given them very large, very strong arcs that you would see in you know a ten season television show. You know they've been in seven, eight, nine, ten movies maybe each. And um, and you know I said in the last episode that my favorite Thor moment was you know, when he says, I went for the head. And that's sort of the end of that arc. And that kind of completes this whole sort of learning that um, that you just can't solve everything with violence. But then I, I really enjoyed Endgame Thor too. you know, after that point. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that was a really interesting turn.
0: Yeah, I mean, as someone who, like, I have not had the realizations that he has had, but emotional eating is definitely a big part of my world and have wrestled a lot with the kind of the self-worth questions that come up about that. Yeah, seeing, like, you know, Thor gain weight and Thor become like kind of like slovenly and like not <clears throat> taking care of himself and kind of punishing himself because as you said, it's this huge realization. So often in movies, that realization happens and it's like, OK, he learned it. Move on. But the fact that the whole next movie is him dealing with that and all, like, he doesn't know who he is anymore and it's just wrecked his world. And, and where he comes to of, like, he is worthy without having to lose the weight, without having to, like, become the the ideal, like, bodybuilder Thor he used to be. It's, yeah, it's just... It, it is... Often, I think, with writers, when they don't... When they end a character arc, they just either stretch the arc out forever or they just write the character out because they're done. And... For Thor to be able to have a second arc that took place is pretty rare, and it makes me just really excited for Thor Love and Thunder, and especially because of all this movie. Like We get talking so much about getting Jane back and Jane having a much bigger role because uh, she becomes Thor in that movie. So, yeah, there's uh, good stuff there.
1: Yeah, it's a, that's, I think, why origin stories are so popular in the superhero world and why it's so hard to make the second movie because it's like, well, they've already gone through their arc, and now they're just a hero – so what do we do? And a lot of times those second films, it's just like, and even Thor: The Dark World, it's like they didn't have as much with him. It was, you know, it it was something that they were able to find ways to explore um, through different elements. And uh, but it 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 took a lot of work, I think, for them to kind of get there and figure out how to do it.
0: And I just want to say, because as Paul said, we've been watching those again. If you want to see a completely different take on that problem the the tim burton michael keaton batman movies are kind of fascinating because for the first one isn't an origin story like it kind of teases that it might be and gets some flashbacks but it's not the batman origin story and then the second as you're saying andy they often don't know what to do the second movie tim burton's idea is just take batman off screen <laughs> like he doesn't he's, he, he's in maybe like 20 percent of the movie it's kind of a fascinating thing that they do so yeah, anyway right, right. uh the intro's gone on very long but because i don't think we're gonna have too much to talk about the main part but let's uh have a quick promo
1: We love doing this show and talking about all the stuff about Thor, but it does take time and cost money. We would love it if you would consider becoming a member of the show. Uh, Members are like patrons over on Patreon. It's all kind of the same thing. We're using Patreon's memberful platform. Just go to truestory.fm slash marvelmovieminute. You can find out what we offer to our patrons. It's only $5 a month, or you can get a discount if you join at the annual rate. Thanks.
0: All right, so welcome back. Um, and now we're kind of into the world of the assistants. As I said, I started off by reading all the different production assistants. We're getting a number of other assistants as things go. Um, is that just a kind of catch-all, like you got the production designer and then just everyone who is helping them is an assistant? Or is that like, are those specific roles in, in a specific way?
1: A production assistant is usually where you come in. Uh, in the industry, you start at the bottom and you're a production assistant, a PA, working with whichever department. Um, yeah, it's just a very... Broad uh, area. I mean, different departments might have their own production assistants, um, uh, but largely it's just the the grunts who are there, kind of helping with whatever needs help with. You know, whether it's um, you know cleaning up after a meal or or you know helping the one of the departments move some things, um, or just being ready with somebody's coffee so that they're ready to grab it when they walk by. You know, it's it's all over the map as far as what they do.
2: Yeah, our our friend Logan was a, a PA on You've Got Mail. And I remember his job basically consisted of, like, go get Meg Ryan's sushi. No, not that sushi, this sushi. Like, you know, the coffee has to be this temperature. But also, like, when you're on location, like, tell people, oh, you you can't cross this street yet. Can you wait? Can you wait? Okay, now you can go, And like, on a headset. And it's like, it feels like the intern of the the film industry, basically. I mean, you get paid, but, you know, it's kind of the bottom of the...
0: And part of what's fascinating to me, and, and... Uh, Andy, you noted a number of these names, and we'll talk about them. But uh, you know, you think of that position, like the like, oh yeah, you'll start in the mail room and you'll work your way up to a corporate executive, as like the the corporate America story. That nine times of ten, I think we kind of roll our eyes. Like, come on, you're never gonna like make that journey. You're just gonna be stuck in the mail room forever. <clears throat> and and we're looking at uh, a number of these people you called out who were not even like production assistants. They were assi- they were like assistants to specific people. And now they're executive producing or they're doing other kind of big things. Is that journey a lot more common than than you might think originally?
1: Well, I mean, and, you know, I should just clarify within my notes, like, yeah, there's a very big uh, kind of division between like the production assistants, who are the people who are helping the production as a whole, and like the people who are more of the personal assistants to Uh, some of these producers and things because they, I mean, their their journey is like, I want to be a producer, usually like that's, or or I want to be a director or whatever it is. And they are working as the assistant for that particular person, so that they can kind of, you know, help that person with whatever they need. But also, it's a good stepping stone, because if they can continue proving themselves as being very effective and great at their jobs, then yeah, that producer at some point is going to say, you know what, you've been So helpful. You know, this business, I'm going to bring you on as an associate producer on the next film or something like that. And yeah, like Trin Tran. I mean, uh, she was assisting uh, Luis Despacito in this film. And I mean, you look at her her credits now. I mean, she's, you know, executive producing some of these uh, big uh, Marvel films. And so she's definitely somebody who kind of took that journey. And I mean, it's it's great. It's great to see that she's done that. But yeah, you'll definitely start seeing her name now in line with all the other producers, not just as an assistant. And and I think a lot of these people who who I called out. I mean, in this section, it's it's all the different, uh, like Kevin Feige's producer. Uh, you know, just a bunch of the different producers. Kenneth Branagh's, uh producer, or uh, sorry, assistant. They are now all doing a lot of this sort of work. Um, Some of them stayed in Marvel. Some of them have moved out of Marvel. But largely, they have kind of continued doing that uh, sort of stuff.
0: Makes sense. i think when I hear the word personal assistant, I think personal assistant to an actor, which they are the stereotype is much more like as you were kind of saying, like get the coffee hot, but not too hot, and get the right kind of sushi and that kind of stuff. But yeah, imagine you're assisting to I mean not that like I don't want to play into the uh stereotype that actors all are like crazy with the ego and that the you know the backstage people are, are totally fine, but I I'm sure there are just as many directors who've had personal assistants doing absolutely nutty, if not, like, illegal or whatever things. Um, Me Too is in Hollywood just as much as anywhere else. But, yeah, it is nice to hear the stories that actually you can't, you can't kind of work out that way.
2: Yeah, and I think, like, assistance to, to a producer or something is, is a little bit more of an apprenticeship type role, right? Whereas assistant to an actor is, like, you're not going to become an actor by being an assistant to an actor, but – Although at the same time, like, I do think Hollywood works a lot through connections as much as uh, resume and, like, you know, you need to have the skills. But, like, meeting people and talking to people, a lot of it is, I think, person to person. You know, it's not like on Indeed.com or whatever.
0: Like, one thing I, uh, I think you pulled out, Andy, was uh, Grit Menzener uh, is the assistant to Ms. Portman, which – By the way, it's also interesting that, like, they're Natalie Portman up above, but now it's Mr. Feige and Ms. Portman. Uh, But this was actually the fifth movie that Grit had been the personal assistant to Natalie Portman. So I guess, yeah, definitely if you develop a good rapport, like, this person knows how I like my coffee, like, that you're going to keep going with them.
1: Well, and a lot of the ones like the personal assistants for the actors, like Chris Hemsworth, uh, worked with him from the from 2011 to 2015. Grit Menzer worked with Natalie Portman for uh, five films. Jennifer Franklin worked with Anthony Hopkins for ten years. So yeah, I mean, they if if they find that right person who they click with, they very likely will kind of continue working with them because they always do. They always get it right. They're always there for me, and yeah, I think that's a a big part of the role. Yeah.
0: I mentioned it briefly, but I just want to give a shout out. I, I'm sure that it is wildly inaccurate and satire. But if you want to see a lot of p- uh, stories that are having fun about like kind of the backstage nonsense that happens, with production assistants and all that, uh, the TV show Entourage, because it's it, that, that's about like especially with characters where like <laughs> the actor is just wanting to get his best friend a job. And so like, yeah, you're my production assistant or whatever it is. You're my personal assistant. Uh, I mentioned a couple of them, but Andy, were there other specific people you wanted to call out? Uh,
1: you know, just I, we I think we absolutely have to shout out uh, uh, Duffy Gaver or Gaver, the personal trainer for Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> yes. uh, because, I mean, if if there's anybody who who could have created a more perfect specimen for uh, a, a male body playing Thor in, in a film, I, I, I think Duffy had, uh, you know, was able to pull it off because, I mean, yeah, Chris, Chris completely fits and i I think everybody uh was completely happy with the work that that duffy did here
0: and i think it's such an interesting person to think about because like when you first see that i think before i really knew anything my first thought was like look chris hemsworth was not a schlub when he auditioned for this movie like how much of that is a personal trainer versus how much is just chris hemsworth has been hitting a gym for two hours a day for the last 20 years of his life but then especially around eternals some of the actors talked about this a lot you know looking like you do in some of these movies, like the very muscles bulging, like that's not just a very well-built person. That's someone who was like, done a very particular exercise regimen for – at a very specific – like six hours before the shot and then like not had any water for a specific – like there's very specific physical things you have to do to your body, often not very healthy. Um, But but yeah, certainly like – and I'm sure the physical trainer – Not, I don't want to blame the personal trainers for the bad parts of that. But like just to say like there's an awful lot of work that goes into like getting the body exactly right for that one shot because it's yeah. – that's not just – Crims Hemsworth – like if you look at his most muscular shot, he did not look like that from day one to date to the ending day of the filming by any means.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and he probably had some weights just offset. And so, like right before he, right before they called action, you know, he was over there, you know, putting in a few extra reps just to kind of give it even, you know, just that slightly more. Uh, you know, the, the bigger, more uh,
2: sweaty sort of look, you know, just kind of just enough to kind of that extra glint. I think swole is the, the word that comes to mind, <laughs> like, you yeah. know, to get the blood to the muscles, literally. Right. So that there actually Absolutely. is. Yeah. Um, I, I do think like it would be like, you know, the more heavyset Thor isn't necessarily like the only visual that you could have of a Thor who's not depressed right like i think the more heavyset thor could as easily be like the strongest people in the world generally are like they 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 are built differently than you know chris hemsworth in this film i do think they went for something very specific and it seemed very convincing you know um and they they very clearly were like this is what we want thor to look like and they're like that yeah you can't really make him look more like that than he does <laughs> like
0: yeah we joked before about how it was, uh, you know. There's a couple scenes where he has his shirt off, and there's a lot of good reasons for it. But I'm sure part of it's also the actor being like, "Look, I worked this hard. I'm starving myself. Let people look at my damn pectoral muscles." Right. You know, the opposite right, of
2: Kamal. Exactly. Uh, uh, Kamalaj. I
0: feel so bad for him. <laughs> and, and, cause he, he's the one who I think who made the most biggest deal yeah. about. Like he did this whole interview about like, look, don't. Go to the gym trying to look like me. This is all special effects and me starving myself and these terrible things to get this ridiculous body that I'm going to lose. And then he never takes his shirt off in the movie.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a, I feel so, I, he's one of my favorite actors right now. He's so good. Um, And I feel bad for him for that. Uh, Paul, what for you? Any kind of either particular people or particular roles that stood out for you yeah. in, the, in these
2: minutes? Yeah. Um, I mean, so first of all, there's transportation, right, which um, I think is mostly like the Teamsters Union, which my understanding uh, is that it was kind of one of the last unions to still be as uh, some of the stereotypes about unions as, as – uh, As it was, Um, you know, I might have heard some stories from my parents about things that happened to people who didn't do things the way the Teamsters wanted them to. Um, But uh, but then the um, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to not even a story, but just like when I was working at Manhattan Center and the Teamsters would back these 40 foot long semis or however long they are. Ridiculously long trucks on a Manhattan street and then turn it into this narrow parking space in in a building in Manhattan. It is absurd the level yeah. of skill that must be necessary <laughs> to actually manage these trucks somewhere like uh New York City at least. In LA maybe it's not as difficult, I don't know, but like in New York it's ridiculous actually trying to get anywhere with vehicles that large and the amount of stuff that has to be carried back and forth all the time. So um you know, I think people are like oh, they're just driving, but it's like it's actually really difficult, I think.
1: Yeah, I think they get a lot of grief because – and, you know, I've given them grief because a lot of times, like, the the drivers, like, their job is to drive. But once they're on set, oh, yeah. they don't do anything. Right. They just sit around, and then they complain that, you know, lunch is 10 minutes late, and, and they ding <laughs> you for it. Uh, and But it's just like, ah, come on. Just go with the flow. But they, they won't. They're very specific. And if something – you know, if there's trash, they won't pick it up. It's not my job. Right. You know, it's, it's very much kind of the uh, the – stereo stereotyping of of who the transpo kind of the drivers are uh but they as you said they are incredible at their jobs and and they keep all the vehicles running they're doing all the maintenance and everything through the whole months and months of of time and so i mean yeah they they definitely aren't aren't slacking
0: that kind of leads me to my next question, which is very union connected, and I'm. Um, I, I think anyone who's listened to me and a- Andy or certainly Paul on other things knows that with, <clears throat> that, that is. A, uh, we're talking about a specific union that has a lot of problems at a specific point in time, and I'm sure even today, I'm sure some. You know, the rules can be frustrating, but like we're all pretty solidly pro union here. <laughs> oh, to be clear, but um, you know, with the credits, I've always kind of wondered. And I, I wonder if this is kind of union negotiations, like. It, you know, you see like we talked about like there was all the, the effects people and then all the lighting people and then the accountants and then all the uh, costume people. Like, and I never really paid attention, but like is the order that those things go in, is that the same for every movie? And is that due to like union negotiation type stuff? Is it just the producer being like, yeah, let's do the, the, the storyboard people next and then we'll do the costumes or what, what decides like this order that you get all the credits in?
1: You know, there's um, a lot of it is just um, just guesswork and trying to block. Well, okay, let's make sure all the camera people are together. And, you know, they work a lot with the grip and electric. So we'll do all the grips the next. Then we'll do all the electric. I, I, I have never found it necessarily the same from film to film. I think that it, certainly you're trying to block certain people, certain groups together because it makes more sense. And generally you're saving all the you're doing all the production stuff um like pre-production and production and then at the very end you have all the post-production with all the editing the music supervision the visual effects like toward the end of the credits so it's kind of like following the process of the film um and and you know i think there's something to that but um yeah sometimes i'm always still surprised when i'm going like why is that like that key person like the the head of the makeup department so far buried in in the in the, in the process as opposed to having a bigger role. But it's I, – I think it I, – I don't, I don't know of any union rules as far as like specific orders for the credits. Um, but, uh, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just trying to figure it out based on kind of like the, the flow of a production.
0: I really hope this doesn't happen. But I – the 100-year history of Hollywood, I imagine there'd be like these couple of times where it's like, yeah, the makeup artist pisses off, pisses off the producer or something like that. It's like, all right, we're going to bury him in the credits, you know?
2: Yeah, I don't know if there's any, like to what extent there's a specific order. Obviously the cast is generally up top and then the songs and then like the union seals at the end, like you see the IA seal at the bottom, like, um, that's, you know, and then there's everything else in the middle. But I do know it's a big deal to a lot of people, and people have sometimes been very upset about exactly their placement in the credits. Once,
0: well, like you said, especially, you know, your, your work's not recognized by the Oscars. It's not often people talk about, like, this is the place that your work is recognized. You know, that it's going to be very important. It's the only one. And I do wonder if that has changed with, you know— Back in the day, like, you went to a movie, you saw the credits, and then if you wanted to kind of, like, try to remember who did the makeup, like, unless you were, like – it would be pretty difficult to track that down. Like, it wasn't like today where you can just open up IMDb and see all the credits. And so I imagine also that, like, we think about now that there's all these other ways to find the credits, but remembering that a lot of this culture started long before that when, yeah, you're an average person seeing it on the on the screen is the only time they're ever going to see that. So and that's like I mean
1: there are a lot more credits now than there used to be, but the number of people working on films hasn't changed that drastically. You still need all those different roles. It's just they have slowly more and more people and departments and unions have fought for, you know, our department should be credited as well. And so that's why credits seem so long now, as opposed to the olden days where it's just like it pretty much was like just what we would see in the kind of the top credits. Like that was all we would get yeah. here. We're just getting so much more now. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. Um, any other names or, or titles that jumped out? I think, Paul, you want to talk about the sec the second unit, somewhat?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, that's you know, my my dad was a, a cameraman. He he wasn't really a director of photography much. I mean, not, not on any features. He did some commercials. Um, but second unit is often where like if you are a camera operator, you can kind of sort of move up by not becoming the main DP, but by, you know, directing things in the second unit. And I mean, if you look at these credits, you know, there's all the original, you know, the, the initial credits, and then you can see how massive the whole second unit is. And then there's also a New Mexico unit. And so they're not necessarily taking the entire um, crew around everywhere. And sometimes you'll have a specific director for the second unit. And sometimes maybe the I guess what makes it the second unit is that the main director isn't going there, right? But yeah. Um, so, you know, here maybe a lot of it's stunts, but often it'll be like location shots. It'll be like, you know, capturing just that one perfect sunset shot. That's just like an establishing shot. And, you know, the second unit will go and do that. And that's a whole shoot. You know, you need a whole crew doing that. Um, but it's not necessarily under the supervision of, you know, the director or the, the um, main cinematographer. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just something I've sort of always paid a little bit more attention to.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, one show that is just a total random thing. is like white collar. I remember being this show that just has this tons of second unit photography of New York city that like most other New York shows just like, don't, um, you know, and here it would probably be a lot of like the desert shots.
1: Yeah, the second unit they keep they they definitely keep busy doing pretty much anything that doesn't involve the main actors. And so I mean it could be like they could be getting shots of of hands pushing buttons on a computer or, you know, whatever. So they're kind of all over the map um with the different types of things.
0: And with stuff like the um the on location like the New Mexico crew um you know, is that often a chance for kind of more local film people to sort of get discovered like the person who like they're, they're doing work in a particular area. They're, they're not running off to Hollywood to try and chase that career, but like they can work when the, the, the film comes to their area and, and do a good, and if they do a good job, can of get noticed maybe and then start to do more, uh, bigger bu- but this isn't bigger budget, but like, you know, main crew kind of stuff. Is that, is there some degree, like I don't want to think of it as the minor leagues. Like there's a lot of great movies that are made completely, like way outside of Hollywood, but, um, yeah, how, how does that aspect of it work?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it is I mean it is the local crew that they're hiring uh and so those people are are coming on board. So this team really was the people, the camera operators and stuff, not necessarily like, you know, the director of photography, they're not hiring another director of photography for there. Harris is still coming here, but then he has another camera and he'll probably work with his very specific main camera crew. But you can see they're hiring a, a C camera operator and first assistant. So a whole C camera team they're bringing on just for New Mexico and so yeah it's it's people that they get to work with and and what's nice about it especially like with new mexico which has great tax incentives which brings a lot of these projects here is is, uh, you know, all of these people start getting all sorts of work and all these other projects that keep coming to New Mexico, you know, then Harris can say, you know, we had a great camera department there. You should get George Stevenson and Stuart Chip Bird and Ryan Eustace on because they were fantastic. And so they end up working on all these other big projects that kind of come through New Mexico. And so it's, it's, uh, yeah, you're right. It, It is very much. Kind of a calling card, a way for these people to kind of continue growing their careers without having to move to Hollywood.
0: One other credit that I wanted to call out is uh, at one point we we see the extras supervisor, and I I did not write it down. It, it kind of just actually uh, I caught my eye this this watch as we're watching right before we make it, and just I know there's some jobs that you often talk about in different kinds of production, and this is true in like everything from like you know producing, like, events for, like, you know, nonprofits or stuff to, like, creating art or or anything like that, where the best version of your job is if no one notices the work you did, you know, and extras to me is is exactly, I, I, and I, Paul, you and I have talked about this, and I, I think there's a James Bond movie you may be to bring up, <laughs> um, but, like, you know, it, it. I don't I don't think there was anything that I saw in the extras that made me be like, wow, those extras were really well, but, you know, we talked, uh, Andy, you would often give the names of some of the extras we were seeing, and, and in every scene, I feel like, you know, you think of scenes like when they're at the crater, you know, and like all those extras, like they have to be reacting in a particular way to sell that scene. All right, the people right. in uh, the town when the destroyer attacks, you know, all the people in Asgard who react with shock to the, you know, Loki and Thor, like their reactions are part of what sells you on the moment, in the, but that you just don't often notice. So I just want to kind of give a shout out to to that role.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of work, a lot of work finding all those people. Uh, because, I mean, <laughs> anyone who's been an extra, they know it can be a kind of a boring job. You know, you you come out there, you think it's going to be exciting, you're on a movie, and you sit around for like nine hours, and then they have you come out to set for like a half hour, and they, they have you react a few times, and then you go sit down for a little while. And it's it can be pretty slow and tedious, and so a lot of people don't want to come back and do it. So, uh, yeah, I think you're a good call bringing, calling
2: them out, because I think they're doing some uh, good work here. For sure, I, I feel like extras is a spot where you don't usually add a lot of value, but you have a really big opportunity to completely blow it, um, as you mentioned in goldeneye there 's this like casino scene, and all the extras like "W ah. and they 're like they just seem totally unbelievable to me and it like it can just take it just took me out of the the moment you know and out of the movie um, i My wife was in um she was an extra in the Bourne legacy with Jeremy Renner. And there's this scene, it's just like, you know, and so she had multiple 14 hour days sitting around waiting, waiting, waiting. Okay. Now go. And now you wait, and then you're supposed to run away and like some of the people running away were like ah like and the, the you know I, I don't know if it's the extras director or the main director but they're like okay no jazz hands you know like <laughs> <laughs> you have to just just put your hands down and just run like because yeah. you don't you know you need to make sure the extras are both looking natural, but also aren't doing something that's necessarily going to, like, draw the focus away from the principal action, right? So I think it's a very easy to overlook, and you want people to be able to overlook it. And if you don't, if they can't, then you, you, you probably haven't done your job very well.
0: Because, like, I mean, let's just talk about human nature. Like, if I get 10 seconds on screen as one person in a 30-person group in a Marvel movie— every part of my brain is going to be telling me, make sure people notice you in this moment. Right, right. You know, which is exactly <laughs> what the extras don't want to do. Exactly. But I imagine, like, 80% of extras, like, have to fight that urge. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the director probably is a big part of, like, <clears throat> just help, especially because, like, just making people feel appreciated, even if yeah, they're not going to be, like, sure. telling someone your job is not to be noticed is a hard thing to do. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's still you
2: know. a really important job. Like, in, I, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff produced during the pandemic suffered from, you know, not having as many extras in a lot of scenes, right? A lot of places don't feel as lived in. They don't feel as natural because, you know, sensibly they didn't want as many people on set. That makes sense. So they were kind of writing and shooting away from scenes that had a lot of people. But, you know, if you can make a world feel much more whole and real, I think by, by having, you know, people there and that job is important if not to be noticed. Yeah.
0: All right, well, coming to the end of our time together, um, <clears throat> that sounds much more ominous than I mean it, but at the end of the, end of the week, uh, Andy or Paul, has there been any other last minute or last credit or name or any other thing you wanted to bring up?
1: No, I think
2: I think we're good. I'll just say the laborers, hail the laborers.
1: Yeah,
0: so,
2: definitely. It's a cereal definitely. box joke.
0: <clears throat> <clears throat> Kashi, Kashi Strawberry ca- Pillows. You, you ate Kashi Strawberry Pillows in the 2000s, you know that joke. But yeah, but it's it's a... I'll be honest, talking to the two of you over the last couple of years has really changed my opinion on the credits. Like, I I used to be annoyed at Marvel that I had to sit through just these boring scroll of names to then watch interesting content. Again, (laughs) old man back in the seats and, you know, all the other stuff. But, like, I I, I love that we got to do this discussion and really talk about, like, all these people who are not appreciated. But, you know— I've often heard like a director, you know, one of the biggest things they do is they're, they're they're directing a team, you know. But then all and so you can say like Brando did a very good job of picking these specific people, but then they have to actually do the work that Brano wants them to do. And and yeah, it's just I think it's really great to get to talk about just how important these roles are and and, and who these people are and and, and just get to talk get to look look further into that.
2: And it's just it's film is just such a collaborative medium. I can't think of. Anything that's more collaborative, just the number of people that have to be involved and have to just do specifically what they need to do for the production to really make You know, two hours or even what was this? An hour forty-five, maybe? um, Really come together? It's not. It's this uh, minute, hundred ten. I should be able to do the math. But (laughs) but to like make this whole package just be kind of as tight and effective as it is, it just takes the work of so many people. And so I think just you know taking a minute or three hours to appreciate (laughs) all the work that went in uh, feels. It matters to me.
0: Awesome. Well, Paul, it's been so great having you on this week. Uh, again, for those who wanted to follow you, just give a quick rundown of like uh, where, they, where they can find like your books, your videos, the different stuff you're doing.
2: Yeah. So I have a website called ZenMadMan.com, which hopefully will have stuff on it by the time this podcast airs. Um, I also have a Twitter, uh, ZenMadMan, and I stream some on Twitch as uh, ZenMadMan.
0: Awesome. And what kind of stuff are they going to find on, the, on that website eventually?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I have some poker books that I wrote, uh, Way of the Poker Warrior, um, and some, some other poker-written content, some poker videos, um, some music that I recorded, and then um, also some stories that I wrote, uh, one uh, novelette called First, and uh, a series, of uh, a book of flash fiction called uh, Zen Madman's Flash Fiction Folio.
0: Uh, and I will do a bit of, this is 100% promoting you, it's not self-promotion <laughs> sure. at all, but you can also find Paul quite often on the Superhero Ethics Podcast or a uh, I think I've heard of this, the Star Wars Universe podcast, uh, the joke, I host both of them. Uh, Paul is a very frequent guest. He's been a co-host at various points in time. Find my stuff at TheEthicalPanda.com. You go to uh, TheNextReal.com, and you'll find a lot of other great uh, film podcasts that Andy and other great people are a part of. And more than anything, have a nice day.
1: Till next time, true believers.